what Putin has been doing over the last 20 years. He has been openly talking about what he is going to do. But now this is a reality check we can't just turn a blind eye to. People have good ideas, but they just remain ideas. And this is an attempt from independent actors from across Europe to come together and create something. Welcome to Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast, where we discuss culture, politics and research with authors and editors from throughout Europe and beyond. Eurozine is an online magazine and a network of more than 100 partner publications. At Eurozine.com, you'll find a selection of outstanding articles from our partner publications translated from dozens of European languages, complemented by quality original content. Instead of creating a filter bubble, Eurozine functions as a sampling membrane, offering you a glimpse into what's on Europe's greatest line. I am Editor-in-Chief Reika Kingopok, and today I am talking with my recurring conversation partner, Director of the European Cultural Foundation, Andrei Wilkens. He's an East German working in the Netherlands, and I'm a Hungarian working in Austria. The parallels we share span quite a sizable portion of the European experience. We're also both public holiday enthusiasts. And this year, we are partnering with more than a dozen other organizations to launch a new content sharing platform, Display Europe. This podcast episode also has an extended version with bonus material available only to our patrons. You can become a patron by pledging as little as five euros a month or more for even more giveaways and exclusive content patreon.com slash eurozine. Thank you. And let's get into it. And very welcome, Andre. Again, you're the returning champion on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time again. And of course, heading into Europe Day 2023, we come back to the question we addressed in the previous years. How this tiny little project of ours, Project Europe, that is, is faring. Last year when we talked, we were relatively fresh into the full-scale escalation of Russia's assault on Ukraine. At the time, we recorded the reports and images of the Bucha massacre were just being published. So this was an incredibly dark time. And we were discussing how Europe is going to come together, if it is going to come together, and address this common threat that on this scale hasn't really been present in many, many decades within Europe. And a lot has happened since. How do you see Project Europe faring with this unprecedented challenge first? Thanks for having me back. It's always a, a pleasure. So there has been another incredible year and you thought you could hardly top it. But and that's maybe a sword for this discussion. You it seems we can always top it. Unfortunately, in not the best direction when you think that we now talk about war in Europe as it's quite a normal thing to talk about. What seemed like last year and a, a totally incredible and unimaginable event that the war would return to Europe is now in a way accepted in a terrible sense. And on the other hand, but it is accepted as we have to deal with it. Our societies have shown a relative, also incredible resilience foremost in Ukraine. 
of course, but also across Europe, one could uh, think there would be fatigue, there would be tensions in society, and of course there are these things, but overall Europe has stood together, excluding maybe some outliers like Ukraine, Hungary, <laughs> sorry, yeah. Hungary and the Hungarian government, but in principle, looking at um, everything which could have happened, I think we have had some resilience in Europe in dealing with this new situation, especially Ukrainian society has been quite a resilient society, if you look at it as a country at war. When it comes to Europe Day, and what is important also when I look at Europe and a sense of belonging, a kind of European cohesion, then I think we are closer together than last year and after three tough years also for Europe and for all our societies. I would say we managed somehow better than one could have expected. Close to where I live, I recently moved within Vienna, there is a gigantic gym whose slogan is that the fetten Jahren sind vorbei. Yep. <laughs> As in the fat years or thick years are gone now, which uh, for a couple of years I have been bewildered how this slogan still stands its ground. Mm. Because the situation has really turned, but it does invoke this biblical level of change in affairs from a point of rapid technological advancement and huge expectations and promises for the near future into constant, severe troubleshooting. At the same time, because usually you're the professional optimist and I'm <laughs> contractually obliged, as long as I hold a Hungarian passport to be semestic and complain about a couple of things, at least mm. two or three times in an hour. Usually I'm the one who questions whether the European Union and its various bodies are reacting adequately. And this time I have to say that probably for the first time in a long time, I am quite bewildered by the way most of Europe has stepped up. Of course, being a Hungarian within all this makes me even more you know, admire everyone else even more. But I think last year, this time, excluding Russia from the SWIFT banking systems was just going into effect, which kind of wowed the international community that it actually could happen, drawing on previous experiences, both with Russia's smaller scale aggression against Ukraine and other situations. Many of us didn't think that these kinds of drastic steps would be possible. And although military aid and direct aid in many forms take time and sometimes take more time than would be ideal for Ukraine, they do happen and they go through. And this is also on this level unprecedented within the European Union. So there's a lot of scaling or a lot of change in magnitude, I think, compared to what we used to be used to as business as usual within the EU. On the other hand, the union also started to enforce consequences more properly than before. The union also started to enforce consequences more seriously against repeat offenders like Hungary, also in terms that these governments understand, as in restricting funding and others. So on the very political front, it seems to be a completely new pace of events. Do you also feel this way? Yes, 
I think with the optimist and pessimist sides, I'm glad that we're moving closer together on some levels. But Chancellor Scholz in Germany called it Zeitenwende. I think that it's been a huge reality check what has happened in the last year. One thing is when you look at what Putin has been doing over the last 20 years, he's been openly talking about what he is going to do, more or less. He wrote essays, he went to the Munich Security Conference, he talked about Ukraine doesn't really exist, he basically talked about the disintegrating West, that he's been supporting many of the extremist parties in Europe and movements. Financially, he's been funding and building misinformation campaigns, influencing elections, poisoning people, and so on. So we've been doing this all, and uh, we just didn't want to take it seriously, to a point that we even accepted somehow the annexation of Crimea, and then went back to business as usual. But now, this is a reality check we can't just turn a blind eye to. How Europe, in that sense, has had this common reality check and had to realize that, that this is different now. We have to act. Of course, this is a tragedy for thousands of people already in Ukraine and for the whole of Ukraine, and we have millions of refugees, displaced people, and so on and so on. It's very tough, but also it has forced Europe to be honest about the situation. And, and I think one of the positive side effects of this has been how Europe basically managed to start an energy transition and turn itself away from Russian oil and gas and the biggest leverage factor Russia actually had. This was long overdue. This should have been done much, much before and everyone knew about it, but now it had to be done. But also all the kind of talking about letting Russian propaganda media worked freely in Europe before, this also has stopped now. So a number of things sort of could not continue anymore. And there, I'm glad that Europe stuck together and made some important decisions. Okay, it's crisis management, but this is not anymore a short-term change. This will have huge and long-term implication, at least in terms of energy. We can see that, and I hope also in terms of how we in Europe appreciate and manage our European public space, in particular also the digital media public space. So I think these tragic events will reshape Europe, certainly our relationship with Russia, but also with China, because some of the elements are not dissimilar in the relations, and force Europe to come to terms with some facts and then create the tools to deal with it. One of them is, of course, militarily a support for Ukraine. I think that this will also result in a stronger military and security cooperation also beyond NATO. Then on energy transition, the energy transition of Europe to a different system, we need to move to a renewable energy system and there are some developments related to the Green Deal happening. And certainly the digital and the media space where we have to develop own capacities. 
But there are other things too, but I would point to these three. And I find it remarkable what under crisis condition then could happen. I find it remarkable, but also in a way I find it sad that it only ever really happens in such dramatic crisis conditions. And that maybe is a lesson also to be drawn from that when we come maybe to the issue of climate transition. We don't have time to wait for the big effects of climate change, which we see anyway, because when the real crisis happens, you can't easily turn back. So on the one hand, it's remarkable how Europe can act in a crisis. And I think there are some positives in terms of working together, managing a crisis and then continuing to build together. On the other hand, we have to get out of this constant managing through crises because it won't be good enough for a number of other big crises, especially the climate transition. Yes, I think this is also a very strongly culturally coded response to postpone and delay and hit snooze and something that's imminently coming and wait until it's a proper crisis. This is probably also a matter of like culturally coded attitudes. I'm one of these people in an environment that's very different to me. I'm usually the one to freak out first, whatever significant problem we're facing when everybody else is yet, no, no, it's, we may just not get there. This is more a conscious strategy oftentimes because if you accept the fact of the crisis early on, then you allow yourself some time to cool your head down by the time the actual crisis has begun. So the real hardship is around. And yeah, my observation is also that the greatest development institutionally, legally, socially, in terms of human rights, social inclusion, etc., they unfortunately tend to concentrate right after huge humanitarian tragedies. And I wish it didn't take as much. We were lucky this winter because it's just been a very forgiving winter in most of Europe. It does have to do with global warming, but with this very bumpy and delayed energy transition, it gave us a bit of a leeway. I believe if we don't use this leeway very quickly, that's going to result in bigger and bigger collapses the coming years. But most of the European Union so far has been very encouraging in this direction. So people are really trying to do what they can to get their acts together and speed up this transition. However, there's also huge transitions happening in the field of culture, center of OSAR interests. One of them is not a positive one, and that's the disappearance or the diminishing of available funding for culture altogether in many fields of both public and private funding in grants as well as philanthropy. And the other one is the concentration funding, meaning that the available resources available to less players and this ecosystem of very diverse cultural actors is having a hard time sustaining itself. But without this ecosystem, small, mid-sized players, community organizations, those embedded in the field, the bigger players who seem to be sort of the big fish who win in the end, 
they won't survive either because if the whole, so to say, whole disciplines weaken, everybody weakens altogether. And there's been a lot of thinking spearheaded by the European Cultural Foundation to address some aspects. There's a lot of infrastructure to change and rebuild in Europe. Much of it has to do with energy. Much of it has to do with transportation, which, let's be honest, the European Union excels at. There's very few complaints. But you and I and our organizations and many partners together have been thinking about digital infrastructure. We are yet to make very specific announcements, but we can talk about a project we are embarking on together, which we call Display. Would you please introduce generally what this Display project is about? Yes, two things. First, the question of the cultural infrastructure. In the current situation, when I started or when we started talking and talked the last three years, very hard years, and especially also for the cultural infrastructure, because before we had COVID, actually still not totally dead, that was a huge shock also to the many cultural actors in terms of sustaining their activities, or even if they couldn't sustain their activities, at least generating some sort of income. And that was tough in a time when uh, everyone also used a lot of remaining cultural infrastructure to manage the crisis of COVID. And then came the war and the energy crisis and inflation and so on. So the cultural sector and the cultural infrastructure is under a huge amount of stress. Therefore, I mean, we as the European Cultural Foundation created our own fund, a cultural solidarity fund to help manage this process of transition. Some of these transitions are actually also very necessary, how to move the cultural system and cross-border exchange system to a more sustainable way of managing cross-border cultural cooperation. It's necessary and needed and some changes are necessary, but to keep our cultural life and also cultural actors, which are not such a state-supported actors, but the small independent organizations alive and kicking and innovative. So we said we need some sort of a deal. So we call it the culture deal for Europe, where the EU and the member states not only rebuild bridges and also digital infrastructure and all the kind of things, a green deal, but also to not forget the cultural infrastructure. And we said we need at least 2% of the 750 billion pot to be allocated to culture. And in fact, that has been quite a success because most countries have, after initially it was no issue at all, included culture in their recovery plans. Now, post-COVID is one thing, but we think this should remain in the budgeting and the support of governments. We're working on it, <laughs> we're supporting a campaign, but I think that needs a lot more attention than currently it has. We talk about the Green Deal, about the energy transition and so on, but we need to maintain our, actually in many ways, wonderful cultural actors and cultural infrastructure and the variety of it is very important for, I mean, it's actually one of the key parts of what makes Europe and what also makes Europe an attractive place. And also the resilience of the communities which need to change and need to endure a lot of stress. So absolutely, yeah, absolutely. this is a vital role. 
I agree. That is state funding, but the other thing is probably also related to what do other organizations like foundations do. I actually also think there should be much more attention from other organizations in the way they support and fund civil society actor and cultural actor. In a way, also the COVID shock has made sort of foundations, philanthropic organizations more flexible. And I hope this flexibility will be maintained also after that it was not only a something happened in a crisis, but you maintain it for the future. So that is sort of on the funding side. And when it comes to the importance of the public space, this is our common interest and concern. But I think there is a new momentum now. And partly maybe also because of the war and the realization that this war has been prepared for possibly decades, I would say decades, for 20 years or so, through infiltrating and using the European public space for misinformation, propaganda, for division, and so on. I think there is now a momentum to realize that something needs to be done. Our initiative called Display tries to develop a kind of a case study what can be done. So we are talking here about a platform, an aggregating platform of independent media actors from across Europe, which together build a platform including state-of-the-art technology, including language technology and machine translation, to create a platform for Europeans where they can access in their own language content from different independent media actors. It's an aggregator, but also there will be edited own content. I see it as an experiment to build something rather than only talk about someone should be doing something. People have been talking about this, that Europeans should be building some sort of platform. Why is there no European Twitter and so on and so on? So this is not the European Twitter, it's another model. But it is an attempt to build something. I'm sure it will not be perfect. But we will learn a lot through this. We will also make an offer for audiences across Europe. Hopefully after the initial first year, we've seen how one could do that and we can continue building it into the future. So that would be my take on this. I mean, Eurozine is one of the founding partners, so you will bring in your expertise as one of the probably oldest truly European cross-border media at least online, yes. Yeah, so it's exciting times. I think the most important is that I've seen it now also many years that people have good ideas, but they just remain ideas. And this is an attempt from independent actors from across Europe to come together and create something and not only say it would be good if there would be something. Indeed, so in their practical terms... This will be a content sharing and syndication platform, which will be visible hopefully later this year. I mean, there's programming included, so I already count with delays. If it's construction, whether digitally or in a house, you get with some delays, even with the best of intentions. But our hope is that it would launch late in the autumn, latest early winter, and it would syndicate 
audio, video, and text across 15 languages, because a major factor in European cultural production is, of course, the linguistic diversity, which we don't want to give up on. The current international public sphere is very heavily reliant on English. Both of us, we converse in English here. I'm not opposed to using lingua franca, whatever that may happen to be at that point in time. It will change, I'm pretty sure. I don't think that in 400 years, everybody is going to have to learn English in schools. Uh, it probably will shift. But giving up on the diversity and on the insight and access into these languages across Europe would be a huge loss. So instead, we thought, why don't we utilize these very rapidly developing language tools in automatic translation as well as augmented translation? So simply speaking, translation at this point has become just much speedier and much more productive with the help of these tools. It doesn't replace humans or editorial capacity, but it does change how things are done, basically digitalizing the use of languages in a new sense. And another major issue that partners have been looking to address is, of course, the autonomy over one's own content, which, for instance, YouTubers are often complaining about, especially those working with high-quality educational content, which sometimes is fighting a battle against other genres, and is sometimes simply penalized on all sorts of grounds. So we would like an infrastructure or a platform that provides autonomy and ownership over one's own content, but also provides ownership to the viewer or reader or listener over the content, because with the proliferation of these very heavily tailored AI-based recommendations across big tech platforms, which basically aim to take you down rabbit holes to extend your stay on a given platform, this is not really a very dependable, neither a transparent and trustworthy operation. We've seen with the scandals around Cambridge Analytica and others, the data is being abused and the user's own interests are not at the very forefront. So the hope is to build something that would address these problems. But also I think the thinking on the minds of the partners is that replacing the current digital monopolies with another monopoly is definitely not the solution. First of all, you don't build a monopoly in one year. That's just not how the digital world works. But more importantly, these monopolies need to be challenged and need to be broken up effectively. So when we talked about offering an alternative, we're not talking about replacing. Uh, we're talking about hopefully opening up a field for a proliferation of alternatives, of which display hopefully will be one very popular with users in Europe and across the world. How do you see this issue of monopoly sometimes phrased also as uh, technological hegemony changing around anytime soon? There's mostly US-based big tech challenged by some tech initiatives outside of the US. There's a lot of talk about China and their abuse of data and content. There isn't yet a significant hub outside of these two poles. 
Do you think Europe can make an effective bet? Well, I think so, and I think Europe has to. Unfortunately, I've been of this position for many years. Just I don't know when, 2017 or so, I made a proposal for something called Europafunk, which is a sort of a European platform, which is sort of a combination of social media, but also streaming platform, and something we can't even now imagine because it doesn't need to be a replication of what already exists, but a new model. I believe in it, and I also think Europe should do it, but Europe has for many, many years in this field, actually also in other fields, relied on legislation, saying, you know, we are big legislators, so we bring in legislation on the use of data, in terms of also legislating monopolies, often too late and then you know you had to come in when basically monopolies were already there and so you could find them and you could maybe forbid that they take over certain other companies but actually even there Europe has been late and had a relatively light touch but then the response was always whoever builds it doesn't matter as long as the European regulator can regulate it. I think that legislation is good, but on the other hand, you have to also create an environment and a sort of an ecosystem where European actors and European innovation can thrive. And that hasn't been done enough. So there are different ways of doing it. Money and venture capital is one thing. But also, you know, how do you use or how do you empower and reorganize public media? Because Europe has strong public media, and I'm not saying state media, media support through public funding. That is also a way you don't have to all leave it to the private sector, and especially if the private sector doesn't live up to the expectations. I mean, we didn't have any serious private platform provider developed in Europe in comparison to other places in the world. So if the private sector hasn't done it, then you have to think of other ways. Some people call it industrial policy. Maybe something like that is necessary. I refer to also many years ago to the idea how Airbus was created. There was no significant provider of airplanes in Europe. And then the governments of France, Germany, Spain, the UK got together and it created a public-private partnership with the big companies from these countries being part of it, but also state-supported. And they created Airbus. And it took years, but now you have one of the two biggest airline producers is Airbus. So something from the spirit, while um, not in the sense of doing it, the tools can be and should be different, but the spirit of what I would call creating an Airbus for the digital age, I would hope Europe can and should develop. And I, I think now there is a momentum and a realization that we can't just sit and wait and use technology wherever it comes from. With the hopes of retrospectively or retroactively legislating our way out of it. Although, you know, now having worked in Austria for almost five years, now I have also kind of developed a love of rules and regulations <laughs> down to the bone. I have a great affection for how 
Austrian public spaces are organized much more thoroughly than in other places. But yeah, probably this this retroactive attitude won't really cut it simply because for so many reasons, but also because the technology is developing so incredibly rapidly. And yet the civil society that is at its mercy is under sustained stress for a long time now. So it's not like there are huge reserves for communities to resiliently muddle through and find their spaces in this constant change. And that's probably a good point for investment. I give you an example on this legislation from a friend who is a practitioner and who has been working for a big tech company. Fortunately, now you moved uh, to another company working on climate change, but he told me once how it worked. This was a monopolist, and they knew that their monopoly was unfair and that the European legislator would sue them and would give them a hard time. And they knew this, and so their approach with their lawyers and their PA people, public affairs people, was to delay they went through all the loops and hoops and discussed it with the EU and paid fines. And they delayed the whole process by around 10 years. And in that meantime, the monopoly became much bigger and the fines they had to pay in proportion to what they actually made in these years was peanuts. So this was their plan. Because legislation also often takes a long time before you legislate these big monopolies and also the fines and so on. So this was a proper process. And in a way, our tools are not good enough to simply legislate monopolies just like that. But my key point, as we discussed, is it's almost a two-track approach. One thing is legislation, and it is important, and much has happened in Europe. It's a good thing. The other thing is you have to incentivize, you have to create an ecosystem where it makes sense to be innovative in Europe, to set up companies in Europe, develop new ideas in Europe, and to also get support for scaling these things. And so the two things are necessary. Just relying on legislation is not good enough. Well, the worst would be if none of these things would happen, but at least if we have the legislative side. But I mean, we have to now invest and find better ways of creating this ecosystem which relates to the European public space. And I actually call it a bit like it's a kind of a space race, um, not that the space race to Mars and stuff, which others are doing too, but it's a race for a safe, open, transparent and enjoyable public space in Europe. We should we raise we should raise to provide that good experience with the best possible technological means. That is a worthwhile space race to engage in. Thanks for joining me again. Thank you. For this year's check-in and I see you well, actually much earlier than next year. Yep. We'll soon announce more details about the display project to the listeners of Kokarin and, of course, all the partners and viewers and readers of the ECF as well as everyone else in the consortium. So, until then, thank you and wish you all the best. Thank you.
You've been listening to Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast with Andri Wilkins, director of the European Culture Foundation. We'll bring you more details about our Display Europe project in the coming months. This episode also comes with some bonus material, available only to our supporters. Please visit patreon.com slash and support our work with as little as five euros a month or whatever you can afford. Please subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review so more people can find us. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you'll always know what's worth thinking about. Gogorin, the Using podcast, is produced by Elias Neuborger. The production is supported by the Zeitstiftung. I've been editor-in-chief Rika Kinga-Pop, and I hope you enjoyed the program.